We are super glad you're here. There are a number of churches that are represented here and, and are delighted for that opportunity. So what's this thing all about? What's this conference for? How did this come about? And it came about uh, through a, a staff meeting we had a few months ago. We were talking about Easter and we were just observing how Easter can so often sneak up on us. Christmas doesn't seem to do that as much. I mean, there's, a, there's some kind of at least a sort of a cultural thing that gives you a few advanced clues. You know, you're, you're walking around and you hear Christmas carols, even in the grocery stores. But Easter somehow can really sneak up on us, and we didn't want to do that. So we said, what can we do this year to really help prepare our hearts for the glory of the resurrection? And we thought, you know, let's, let's have a Bible conference focused around the Passion Week. Focused around the Passion Week. You know, the, the account of that last week of Jesus' life occupies half of every single gospel account. It is a big deal. And so once we decided on that, the next question was, who are we going to get to come and do this? And, and really, that was no question at all, because if he was available, Dr. Doug Bookman, there is nobody else. I have known Doug for about 15 years, I think, and um, we have become good friends. We don't see each other as often as we would like, but we have become good friends. I have learned so much from him through the years. We used to have a Bible school here, and he taught at it and was probably our most um, well-liked professor who taught at the school. So just the, the, uh, the typical biographical stuff, uh, if you'll permit me, Doug, to just kind of lay that out here. Um, Doug earned his uh, Master of Divinity and Master of Theology degrees at Central Baptist Theological Seminary and his Doctor of Theology at Dallas Theological Seminary. After graduating from Pillsbury Baptist Bible College and Central Seminary, Dr. Bookman served as a pastor teacher in Rock Falls, Wisconsin. He joined the faculty of Pillsbury College in 1973 and taught there for 11 years, eventually serving as chairman of the Bible department. In 1987, he joined the Bible department of the Master's College. While there at the Master's College, he was teacher of the year on a number of occasions. While there at the Master's College, he conceived, designed, and implemented the IBEX program, a semester abroad in Israel. And during those years, he began to see the need for a renewed emphasis on the life of Christ and the nation of Israel. In 1998, Dr. Bookman joined the Friends of Israel as a national representative. Throughout the years, he has taught at various colleges and seminaries, served as pastor and interim pastor in a number of local churches. And much of his ministry in the last decade has focused on both Israel and the life of Christ, leading study trips to Israel, speaking at Bible conferences across the United States and abroad, and he is on the faculty of the Shepherd's Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. I can say, oh, I need to say this, his wife Diane, what a wonderful, what a wonderful woman. And they've been married for 48 years, 48 years. They have three children, 10 grandchildren. So God has blessed your tribe I've said this to, to the Foothill congregation, I'll say it to all of you here tonight. In my opinion, there is no finer um, New Testament teacher uh, currently alive here in the United States, at least that I'm aware of and that I've heard. And so it is a great delight to have you with us, Doug. Well, thank you so very much, David. And, and, and uh, everything he said about our dear friendship is true. The rest of it, take with a grain of salt. But uh, no, and it's a delight to be back here at Foothill Bible. Uh, as he said, I had the opportunity to come and teach and preach, and it's, uh, I've just cherished this church. So thank you so much for the invitation. 
I do bring you greetings from uh, uh, Shepherd's Seminary. Have you ever heard of Shepherd's Seminary? It's a fine uh, seminary out on the uh, East Coast, Cary, North Carolina, but it is an immediate mission match for this church. So if you're ever, if you're at all interested, I'd love to talk to you about seminary, but we have work to do. So can we go to this screen? Uh, the, uh, there we go. Good deal. Now you have that booklet and uh, it, it contains notes and our focus is going to be, as you know, and I so much appreciate what David says, you know, it is true, you have these four Gospels, and the reason I believe primarily that God gave us four accounts of the life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension of his son and so on is because in the mouth of two or three witnesses is every matter established. And your faith is uniquely grounded in history, and I like to say that one of the curious realities about history is most of it happened a long time ago. Can we, can we agree with that? But here you have this historical set of events. Oh, yeah, good deal. Uh, you have this historical, oh, I was yelling at you, wasn't I? But, no, you have this historical set of events, and, and think about it, many of the events, look, <laughs> the way God reveals himself is, first of all, he reveals through event revelation where he breaks into, into human history, and then he raises up spokesmen, and it reveals himself through word revelation. In the Old Testament, those spokesmen are called uh, prophets. In the New Testament, they're called apostles. And the spokesmen have two basic jobs. Number one is to record the event revelation. That makes sense to you? Because we, 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 we have an absolutely dependable God, breathed, spirit-enabled uh, record of, the, of this marvelous series whenever God breaks through into human history. So, so the, the, the divine spokesmen, apostles and, uh, prophets and apostles, first of all, record the event, and then they interpret it. How well would we understand the cross work of Jesus if we had Matthew, but we didn't have Romans? See what's going on there? So God makes sure we understand exactly because he raises up an apostle. Now, the point is that again and again, God has broken through at various times, various seasons, and made himself known, he inter I like to say he perpendicularizes himself to human history, just breaks in. But the greatest season of divine revelation was when the word was made flesh. Amen and amen. This is the point of Hebrews, of course, that in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, uh, we have this final week, and, and, and you know, David's point is so well taken as well, I'll just rehearse it quickly, that, that the, every one of the four Gospels is deliberately selective. He chooses what he's going to emphasize and what he's going to omit from Jesus' ministry under the superintending ministry of the Spirit of God. So no one of the four Gospels claims to be or is, in fact, an exhaustive telling. So they are being deliberately selective. But here's the interesting thing. About half of each one of the four Gospels is given to the last week of Jesus' life, basically. That is, traveling to that and then the last week. Now, what does that suggest? Well, number one, it suggests that we can put together this final week of Jesus' life with a specificity, with detail that we really can't bring to the rest of Jesus' life. We really can take those four Gospels, lay them kind of one on top of each other, harmonize them, weave them together, and, and come away with a very complete 
record, detailed record of this most important week in all of human history. So uh, God has contrived, God has, has ordered it thus, that the gospel writers gave so much attention to this final week that we can reconstruct it. I think it would also suggest, and I think that this reality would probably be intuitive to us, that God really wants us to know this week. God wants us to come to grips with this week. Now we sang, and it was, it was thrilling to sing and remember the, 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 the cross work of Jesus and so on. And I know that many of the events of this week are really quite familiar. We've studied them, all of our Christian experience and so on. But I think that what, what I really am jealous for, and I'm going to get into it very quickly, what I'm very jealous for is that you understand the week as a week. In other words, it's a drama. I think sometimes we can think about Gethsemane. We can think about the upper room. We can think about the triumphal entry. But do we understand how that unfolds as a real drama in the life of Jesus? And we have, the, as I say, we have the revealed, we have the revelation that, that we need to do that. So uh, that's where I'm taking you. Now let me get a couple of things out of the way. On the screen, hold on here, why is this not? All right, I'm, I don't know why, I'm, oh, but I know what happened. Oh, there we go. Now, can you see that? Look, these are some things I like to start with, and I don't have time, so there. But uh, there are a couple things. I'm really, I already said, the only source of our knowledge is the life of Jesus. We've got these four Gospels. They're God-breathed, and they, they are framed exactly as God intended. Number two there, and I generally spend a good deal of time with this. I'm not going to. Uh, I have done it in these sacred precincts before, but uh, not many of you were here. But let me just say this. I'm going to be quick here. That's a word to myself. I'm saying, Bookman, keep going here. But I'm telling you, it is the, I think, the besetting carelessness. I don't think it's a sin, but I think it's the besetting carelessness of an awful lot of Christians. Uh, and I mean well-taught, very serious Christians. I think altogether it's our tendency to underappreciate the genuine humanity of Jesus. And I'm just going to go on record as we go through this, folks. Let's just say it this way. Don't fall into what I call the Clark Kent approach to Christology. Now, do you know what I'm saying? Was there a Clark Kent? Was there a, was there a real person? No, that was Superman pretending. And I think, and, and, and we would never frame our theology this way. Nobody would ever write a doctrinal statement that said this about Jesus. But the way we read the passages, when we read the stories of Jesus' life, we, it's all too, all too easy to fall into this Clark Kent approach where we regard Jesus as God dressed up like man, God pretending to be man. Are you with me? You don't believe that if I frame it that way. Listen, I heard a preacher, and I, I, I know this is going to come up at the Bema seat to my demerit because I beat up on this guy for years, and he doesn't, but I, 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 it, just, it just stuck out to me. He's, he was talking about, he's a good man, but he was wrong about this. He was talking about uh, Jesus in the, in the temple at the age of 12 and how he was, he was, he was uh, interacting with the, with the rabbis, and he said this. Now, I just want you to just 10 seconds of, of thought here. The man said, it would have been very hard to argue with Jesus because he always knew what you were going to say before you said it. Now, 
I have some pages on your notes, page uh, three and four about this. I'm not going to take you through it. I spend a lot of time with it. I mean, I give you a lot of space. Listen, let me just tell you this. There's a lot in here we're not going to cover, okay? But I asked Dave to go ahead and, and, and print it out, and that way you'd have it, and you could use it and so on if, if, if you're inclined to. But suffice it to say that it is so terribly important, theologically and, and practically and devotionally, to come to grips, and it will be such a refreshment to your soul spirit if you have not been of this habit heretofore, to come to grips with the reality that Jesus took upon himself genuine, unfallen humanity. He did not cease in any sense, at any moment, in any, to any degree, to be God. There is bottomless mystery in this, and we will explore, but never plumb that mystery, I think, throughout eternity. But Jesus' humanity was real. And therefore, here it is, he lived a life stunningly like yours. Stunningly. So as we go, see, I go back to it. Jesus always knew what you were going to say before you said it. That's Superman. Anybody else raised on Superman comics? Can you not see Clark Kent walking down the street with the glasses and you see a little beam come out and he sees through the wall and there's a robber inside, you know, but nobody knows. He's Now listen. So he's pretending. He's, he's perpetuating the illusion. You don't believe that for a minute about Jesus. But I'm just going to encourage you. I'm going to leave it here. Without pretending we can understand what it means, you know what, I've got to interrupt myself. We've gotten too used to the idea of the God-man. It, it's too easy for us. Uh, it kind of rolls off of our tongue. We've had a couple of thousand years to work with this. And, and, and so, yeah, Jesus was God, very God. He was man, very man. There is, that is, I don't know that God has ever set before mankind a truth claim that more thoroughly drives us to the end of ourselves and to our knees than this truth claim. The Word became flesh. The eternal Word, the second person of a triune Godhead, took upon himself real humanity. Now, I think it's important. I'm just going to read this one statement. If you look on page four, in the bold print at the top of the page, I make this point. This is a little theological lesson before we get into this because I think it's so important. And, and everybody, I'm telling you, you know this, but I'm just going to ask you to sort of consciously calibrate your mind to keep this really in, in, in the forefront as you go. Uh, this is a theological formula, and uh, uh, I think it reflects what the Bible teaches in the narrative portions. And you see it there at the top of page four, isn't it, in the, in the bold print. It simply says this, that I think the best way to understand uh, 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 the, the relationship between the divine and the human in terms of function, not in terms of essence, but in terms of function, okay, during his mortality, Jesus surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He didn't surrender his attributes. He didn't surrender the exercise of his attributes. Did he, listen, listen, did he encounter a woman at a well in Sychar and know that she had had five husbands? Did she not take that as evidence of supernatural knowledge and thus accept him as Messiah? I'm taking you somewhere here. You remember when Peter understood by the Spirit of God that Ananias and fire were lying to him? Remember that story in Acts chapter 5? So the Spirit taught Peter that they were lying to him, right? 
do you go from there to the idea that Peter lived his whole life that way? No. It was when the Spirit enabled him. Jesus was absolutely dependent upon the Spirit. As a matter of fact, you know what? Think about this. During his life on earth, Jesus had no more spiritual resources than you and I. He knew the scriptures. When he was tempted, what did he do? And by the way, you don't wave the scriptures around like a talisman. It's not a vampire. What he did is he called to mind precisely what the scriptures demanded of him, and he obeyed what the scriptures demanded. Before he chose his apostles, he spent a whole night in prayer. I've heard people say, well, that was just for our benefit. He didn't really have, oh, no. Jesus, so I'm going to say, understand this, that, well, matter of fact, I'm in, in the middle of two thoughts. Number one, ponder for a moment the bottomless mystery of a man standing before you claiming to be God. You know, the Jewish people, all of their history, were surrounded by pagan peoples. And they had gods who lived out on a mountain outside of town. And they were nothing more than men blown big. They lusted big. They warred big. You know what I'm saying? They revenged big, if you don't mind. But they were just, God, all throughout the Old Testament, insists that he is not part of this creation. He is transcendent. He is holy, separate. He is apart from this. And if I'm a Jew living in the first century, I know this for sure. Yahweh, my God, is not like those idols. Yahweh, my God, is not a man. And yet here stands a man standing in front of me claiming to be God. Can you imagine how difficult that was? And it was. It was horribly difficult. But the fact is that Jesus demonstrated that he was God, that, that people believed his claims, checked against the scriptures, and bowed the knee to the claim. And uh, so I'm saying that uh, that that we, I, I acknowledge the mystery, and I think we ought to contemplate the bottomless mystery that is resident in that remarkable reality that, that God took upon himself. I don't understand it, but I, I, I relish it. But on the other hand, as we go, I'm just going to leave it there. Please, I, you'll hear me. Could, could Jesus, did, did Jesus sometimes ask questions? Yeah. Why would he ask them? Because he, he, he wanted to know. You know, by the way, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin your Christmas, all right? So, but just forget this as soon as I tell you. There is a late, heretical, Gnostic gospel of the infancy. It's very late, and it's, 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 it's absolute heresy. But it says that when Jesus was being born, as his mother was wrapping him in swaddling clothes, he looked up at her and said, handle me carefully, I'm the son of God. <laughs> now, that takes some of the fun out of Christmas, doesn't it, wouldn't you say? So why? What are you saying? What do you, what do you realize? Well, it's, it's, it's not accidental for a human being to be born pre-sentient. If a baby emerges from the womb speaking, it's not a human baby. It's an alien of some sort, for heaven's sake. So we know that Jesus had to grow. He had to discover who he was. He had to learn to walk and talk. He had to... He had to be trained and so on. So in every way, Jesus had to grow. Now, he was sinless, so he didn't have the weight of sin. But I'm saying to you, understand that Jesus, and yes, he did ask questions. Uh, when, when he comes, and we're going to see this in just a few minutes, when he comes to raise Lazarus from the dead, and Martha comes out and gets after him, and if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
And, and, and he says, no, your brother's going to live again. Oh, I know he's going to live again, but I want him now. He's going to live again in the resurrection. No, 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 Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? He says, yes, I believe that. The next thing he says is, where have they laid him? Uh, you really get Didi kind of bumping up against. So, so the, if the Spirit of God had, 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 had chosen to reveal to Jesus the location of the cave, then he could have gone straight there. But clearly the Spirit didn't, and so Jesus asked where they laid him. Uh, this is an honest question, and it's a question you women ought to really appreciate because Jesus was willing to ask for directions, you know what I'm saying? But uh, <laughs> I don't wander around all afternoon. I can find that cave, don't tell me. No, but, but I can take you to other places. Honest to goodness, folks, I can tell you. It's a, Jesus, I'm going to say it one more time. No, I'll probably say it a dozen more, but right now. Jesus lived a life so stunningly like yours. And it's only because he took upon himself genuine human nature that he is able to be our redeemer. He can't be our redeemer if he's not our kinsman. And it's only because he took upon himself genuine human nature and lived a life that with all the... You listen, you could live a thousand lives. You'll never know the heartache. You'll never know the temptation that Jesus... And it was real. And he, and, 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 he, and he resisted that temptation simply by committing himself to obedience to his Father and resting upon the ministry of the Spirit just like you and I. All right? So not only could he not be a kinsman redeemer if he were not, if he were not human, he couldn't be the high priest who's genuinely touched with the feeling of me. So I'm going I'm to park that. But, uh, well, it's going to become very important as we go. Now, third thing on the sheet uh, in that regard, and this is going to come up in just a moment, so let me just mention the verse. In Matthew 10, in that remarkable passage where Jesus is, is uh, uh, he's commissioning the 12. He's chosen to spend a night in prayer, commissioned the 12 apostles, and sending them out, but he, 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 he gives them this commission, and as part of that commission, now think about this. I love this verse. Matthew 10 and verse 16. Matter of fact, you know what I can do? David, watch this. Uh, I like, kind of like to have it in front of us. So Matthew 10 and verse 16, he says, uh, I want you to see this because, there. Uh, he says, behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now I want you to see something here, you're going to have to take my word for it, but in point of fact, it sounds in our English translation, but it really is not what the Greek is saying exactly, that the therefore has to do with the sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you as a sheep. Therefore, in the Greek, twice, it's, it's emphasized that what really is at stake is, behold, I am the one sending you. And therefore, you have to be wise as serpents. Now, what I get from that is this, that Jesus is saying, you're going in my name. You're going to represent me, and therefore you have to represent who I am. And for that reason, it's necessary to be wise as serpents. And the word wise is not the normal uh, uh, biblical word for skillful living. It's a word that means clever, uh, strategic, resourceful. I think one could almost say scheming if you, if, if you realize that the second part of the verse says, and as harmless as doves. Now, the point is simply this, that Jesus was this perfectly. Jesus had to plan. He had to, he had to lay, he had to plot, one could say. And I'm going to show you that in a little while. See, here's the thing. I think when we, and I'll just say it this way, when we underappreciate the genuine humanity of Jesus, 
we make him into some sort of a divine colossus, you know, that just kind of strides through life and everybody gets robotized when he, robotized, I made that word up, when he walks in a room and everything. And listen, Jesus, could Jesus set out to do something and be frustrated? Work at it for months? You betcha, Mark 7 and 8. He went into a house, he would have no man know it, but he could not be it. He was, he, oh, I, I haven't got time to go there, but the point is, so my point is, Jesus said to his disciples, because you're going in my name, you have to be, and think about the balance here. Wise, clever folks. Wise is what? Does that call anything to mind? How far you have to go in the scriptures before you encounter a wise serpent? You know what I'm saying? And that's what we're up against. So you need to be as wise, as clever, as resourceful, as strategic. You need to plan to put your enemy at every possible disadvantage and put yourself at every possible advantage. You know what, folks? We have no right to be careless with the resources and the ministry God gives us. Well, this is our calling, to be wise as serpents, to make foolproof, but be harmless as doves. Never, ever compromise or violate any standard of ethics and morality. Now, all I want to say, I want to go on record, that Jesus and, and, and Jesus was that perfectly, and it's fun to trace, and we're going to do it in just a few minutes. But I think when we, when we don't kind of deliberately conceptualize this reality that Jesus was living a real life, and he had to, he had to frame his ministry and adjust as he went and so on, but we, we, we neglect this, and it's one of the elements of Jesus' ministry that I enjoy the most. And then one other point to be made there, whoop, is uh, pretty complicated. Oh, that's not what I want. On your, in your booklet, now the, my final point there is simply that, that Jesus, listen, I think this is so important, and that's why I'm going to take just a moment. If you look on page two, I think it is, there's a chart. I'm not going to spend time. If I start, I'll talk way too much. But there are, quite frankly, a lot of data. I've tried to kind of distill the life of Jesus, no, the ministry, the ministry of Jesus in this chart. But what I want to say is simply this, and I, I could develop in the chart, but let me just say it as simply as I know how. We think of Jesus as coming to die. Amen and amen. But know this, and this plays into the drama before us so importantly. Jesus never spoke of dying until almost three years into his three-and-a-half-year ministry. So if you start at the baptism and you go to the ascension, it's about three-and-a-half years. Well, Jesus is almost three years into that before he ever tells his disciples he's going to die. Do you remember this passage, Matthew 16, 21? This, uh, here, Matthew 16, 21, this is where he was frustrated because he had tried to get alone with his disciples to break this news to him. He knew it was going to be devastating. And he finally took him up to the foothills. Some of you have been there with me. Uh, the region to the foothill uh, of, of Mount Hermon to a region called uh, Banyas or Dan up in the mountains. And he gets them alone. And here is Matthew 16, 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must be taken to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day rise again. Now that, I'm going to say, it's three years into Jesus' public ministry. He has never said it before. And when he did tell them he was going to die, 
how did they react? Did they say, well, of course, we got Isaiah 53. We wondered when you'd start talking about no. You know, the next verse, I don't have you there, but Matthew 16, 22 says, then Peter took him. And most translations have took him aside. I don't think so. I mean, that's one legitimate reading, but I think he took him like this. Far be it from you. That's not going to happen. And you know, when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die, it was so devastating to them that they began to seriously doubt his messianic claims. And that's why about a week later, he took three of them up into a mountain and gave them a foretaste of the glory that's going to be his in the kingdom. That's all about reinforcing their staggering faith. They had begun to give up on Jesus as Messiah. Now, that's how serious it was. Now, there's a lot more to say about that, isn't there? But uh, uh, I just made, I just realized something here. <laughs> you got a clock up here? No, there is a clock here, and you forgot to set it. So what do I? I mean, you forgot to move it ahead. So I got a quarter after six till eight o'clock. Man, <laughs> I am hunkering down here. I just, <laughs> what a good deal. Nah, I, I get you out of here. But, but here's the thing. This is where I'm taking you. Uh, this is what you need to know. And you know that verse says, from that time forth began Jesus. It means he started there, but he kept doing it again and again. And I can take you to the place in the scriptures where he died, in the Gospels, but again and again. The most powerful, I won't take you there, is Luke 18, 31 to 34, where on the way up to the Passover, he tells his disciples once again in the most explicit terms, I'm going to die, and on the third day, I will rise again. And then Luke says, his disciples did not understand the things in which he spoke. The thing was hidden from them. They didn't know what he was saying. I mean, Luke trips over himself. So here's where I'm taking you. And this pertains so immediately, and I think it, 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 it ought to color our understanding of the drama before us, the drama of the, drama of the Passion Week. Jesus was moving toward the cross. He is so carefully and methodically moving toward the cross. His disciples are clueless, totally clueless. And I, the Bible is explicit that they thought that Jesus was about to establish the kingdom. In Luke 19, as Jesus mounts the hill, comes up the backside of the Mount of Olives from Jericho up to Jerusalem, as he was approaching Jerusalem, Luke says that he took his disciples aside, told them a parable about a man, a king, who went away to receive his kingdom and left his, his, his stewards behind. You remember that? And it says that he told them that parable because they thought the kingdom was immediately to appear. So they were convinced we're on a roll here. We'll come back to that. But, but know this, know this, that Jesus' disciples are absolutely clueless. You know, every time Jesus says, I'm going to be taken to Jerusalem, suffer many things that the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, every time, he says, on the third day, I'll rise again. Wouldn't you have thought that maybe just one or two of the disciples would thought, you know, he said that. Let's go hide behind a rock, see what happens. They don't. And not only do they not do that, but when the women come from the empty tomb, remember that? You're crazy. What's staggering to me, and I, I can't get off on this, but... but What's staggering to me is even the death of Jesus did not cause his disciples to say it was the resurrection. Remember those two guys on the road to Emmaus? Remember the past tense? We thought he was the Messiah. He's a dead guy. So just understand that, that, that his disciples were totally clueless. 
All right, with that, let me take you to the narrative itself. That's just sort of background. Now, I want to go to Luke 13, and I have here, and this is on your sheet. Uh, they, they don't match exactly. If you go to page 5, uh, uh, I'm gonna, this is the passage I'm looking at. Uh, now, listen. All right. I got to, listen. <laughs> the chronology of Jesus' life following the time units, is difficult at the beginning of his ministry. When we get to this point in Jesus' ministry, because John, the fourth gospelist, keeps giving us these feasts, we can, we can go week by week in Jesus' ministry, up to the Passion Week. Well, in John 10, Jesus had gone to Jerusalem. John 10, verse 22, Bible quiz. Says Jesus was in Jerusalem for the feast of dedication, and it was winter. What's the feast of dedication? I know. It's winter. It's a Jewish feast. It's in winter. Matter of fact, it's a Christmas time. It's Hanukkah. So, so he's there in late December, and it's there, John ten verse thirty, that he says, "I and the Father are one." And the Pharisees are so offended they pick up stones to stone him, and he makes his way because he is wise as a serpent. So he makes his way to Perea. And there in Perea, well, let me talk about that real quickly. Here it is. Here is a map, uh, and there's way too much material here. But let me just say it this way. Uh, oh, boy. Geography's good. You need to know. But when we get into the Gospels, the, the ministry of Jesus... The Romans have divided the land that we know of as Israel into governing territories. In the south, there is Judea and Samaria, and that is ruled by a man named Pontius. Oh, I can't do that. Curses. By a man named Pontius Pilate. We're going to get to know Pontius Pilate tomorrow morning. But just know this. Number one, I'm going to give you some details here, but it really, this, this will help you, whether you like it or not. Pontius Pilate had used up all of his coupons back in Rome. He knew he was living on thin ice. He was given charge of this area, which is Judea, which is down around Jerusalem between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And that area down there is totally, totally Jewish. And so, and because, oh, there's a lot of history with Sejanus and some decrees and so on, but the fact is that by this point in history, now watch this, the Jews in Judea can get Pilate to dance to whatever tune they pipe. They got leverage. Does that make sense to you? And it's going to become manifest because that's where they're going to have to get him to put him to death, right? They're going to have to get the Romans to do it. Now, nah. So Jesus knows he's always in the greatest danger down there in Judea because Pilate is so beholden to the Jewish leaders. On the other hand, the area to the north is okay, actually these two areas. Can you see that? Oh, it's not real plain, but uh, the area to the north, which is Galilee, and then the area to the east, which is Perea, these were ruled by a man by the name of Herod Antipas. All right, now there are four Herods in the New Testament. You've got to sort them out. But the guy who tried to kill the baby Jesus, that's the paterfamilias, that's Herod the Great. He's dead a long time ago. But one of his sons, Herod Antipas, 
is ruling up in Galilee and Perea. And in Galilee and Perea, there are more Jews living there, but there are also many Gentiles. And Herod Antipas is totally muscled up with Rome. They love him. As a matter of fact, do you know, the, the Caesar at this time is a man named Tiberius. When Herod Antipas was a boy, his father, Herod the Great, sent him back to Rome to school him. One of his closest friends was Tiberius. So, I mean, he, he has nothing to fear. So, Jesus knows he is in greater danger in Judea. And so here's what I want you to see. And I want you to see it's because he's wise as a serpent. Here he is in Jerusalem where the Jews can really, he's dangerous. It's dangerous. And so he, 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 when they pick up stones, he simply goes over the Mount of Olives and down the 15 miles, crosses the Jordan River. Now he's in Paris in a different jurisdiction. He's out of danger. All right, does that make sense to you? That's why he went to Perea. All right, now let's go to uh, Luke 13. And uh, verse 31. Now, you're going to have to take my word for it a little bit here, but Luke says that Jesus is in Perea, and some Pharisees come. And uh, here it is right here. Some Pharisees came. Pharisees are coming from Judea. They, they don't belong here in Perea. But this, this is the same crowd who took up stones to stone Jesus a little while ago. But he had gone over to Perea, and thousands of people from Judea had gone over to listen, and that was driving the Pharisees nuts. And so they come over here with a trick, with a ploy. And they come over and they say, get out and depart, for Herod wants to kill you. That's Herod Antipas. This is a ploy. It's a cheap trick. They're trying to lure him back into Judea where they can have their way with him. Does that make sense to you? Now, I want you to see what Jesus says. This sets the scene for what we're going to talk about for the next half hour. Number one, he says, you go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons. You know what? Let, let, let me just, oh, I shouldn't stop on this. But listen, let me tell you something, folks. This is a bit of an aside. I got no time for this. But learn to read the Bible in terms of its own culture. It's, it's work. But, but you, you can't read the Bible in terms of your culture. And one of the remarkable realities about the Bible, you know what? Here, this is a good just hermeneutical lesson for you. So there. The Bible was written to an or, in an oral culture. You learn by listening. Books were hideously expensive. The Jews were literate, but they normally didn't have their own books. They would go and sit and listen to it be read. Well, because of that, the writer has to, whatever you want of emphasis or nuance or anything like that, you have to actually put in the text. And there are no punctuation marks. There are no underlining. You know what I'm saying? So the text, well... The Hebrew has a number of very clever ways in the text, in the words. So no matter with what inflection they are read, the reader, the hearer, is going is to get the reader's intent. That makes sense to you, honestly? And here is one of them, because Jesus says, now get the picture. Jesus is teaching. He's in Paris. He's in the land of Herod Antipas. Here come these Pharisees. If you're there that day, you're thinking, oh, this is not good. Here come the, they hate Jesus, and they've come all the way over here from Jerusalem. So the tension kind of mounts, and they come up, and they say, hey, look, you better get back to Judea because Herod Antipas went. Jesus, he knows better. But he says, this is what he says to them. He says, you go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I'll be perfected. And then he says, nevertheless, I'm going to journey today and tomorrow, and the day following it cannot be that a prophet will perish. Now, what is that about? I'm going to cast out demons today and tomorrow. Now, remember, <laughs> you know what, by the way? 
The New Testament writers wrote in Greek. They thought in Hebrew. So they're going to bring Old Testament figures with them. And one of the ways that you express perfection or completeness or just emphasis in Hebrew is with a literary device. Oh, how'd this come up tonight, right? But a literary device called the numerical progression. How do you like that? You never heard of such a thing. Yes, you have. You know it. Now listen to this. You can finish this for me. I'll bet you. Many of you can finish this. Six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven are abomination. Three things I don't understand. Yea, four. It's all throughout the Bible. X, yea, verily, X plus one. Now the thought is not that there are only seven things that God hates. The thought is he really hates these. Does that make sense to you? It always speaks of completion, of fullness. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to fall for your little silly trick. When the time is full, when the time, the God, Father's time, I'm going to do it today and tomorrow and on the third day. When the time is full, I'm going to come. I'm not going to play your, your, fall for your little trick. Does that make sense to you? Now, then he, he gives this one-liner that may be the best, uh, uh, if you don't mind, humor in the New Testament where he says, besides that, you know a prophet can't perish anywhere but in Jerusalem. But that's what I want you to see is verses 34 and 35. Because now Jesus says this, and this is a really poignant moment. It is, now Jesus is going to die on April 3rd of 33 AD. This is somewhere probably in late January, early February of 33. So this is just weeks before he dies. And he's He's, he's oh, 20 miles from Jerusalem, somewhere over here in Perea, on the eastern side of the Jordan. And these Pharisees, and you could see a Pharisee a mile away, their blue was bluer, and their fringe was longer, and their hat was higher, and so on. So here come these Pharisees, great pomp, and they come marching over with this ploy, this cheap trick. And then Jesus stands there. These Pharisees are from Jerusalem. Yea, barely they're the gatekeepers of Jerusalem. And Jesus from Perea, weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How oft would I have gathered you to myself as a hen does her chicks, but you would not. And then he says, uh, uh, verse, verse 35, your house is left to you desolate. Now, folks, this is what I want you to see right here. Assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Folks, stay with me for a minute. This is huge. Jesus says, he makes a promise. Now, i got to take you to another passage. Let me take you to Psalm 118. I'm going to take your Bible and go to Psalm 118. I'm going to go there. Uh, Psalm 118 is a, I, I like to call it, the Psalm of Messianic ex, uh, Inauguration. This is the song that God gave Israel to teach them how the, uh, how to receive their Messiah. And notice right here, folks, do you see this? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is about, if you don't mind, receiving the Messiah. And so now, Jesus says, you're not going to see me until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So hear what Jesus is saying. He is saying, now, get the scene. These Pharisees have come all the way over into this Gentile territory. They undoubtedly 
have broken out in a red rash somewhere along the way, if you know what I mean. But uh, uh, they don't like being in Gentile territory, is what I'm trying to say. And, and they have marched over here with murder in their hearts. You need to understand something else. The Pharisees were absolutely revered by the common man. And, and, and the common man pretty much, oh, uh, they, they were the gatekeepers. And so Jesus says to these Pharisees, your house is left to you desolate, and you're not going to see me until you cry out, the Psalm 118, blessed is he. In other words, until you welcome me as Messiah. Now listen, I'll tell you something, if you'd have been there that day, if you'd have come over to listen to Jesus and you'd have heard Jesus make that promise to the Pharisees, you'd have said to yourself, that's not going to happen. This city, that city, is totally under the thumb in the thrall of the Pharisees. They run it hook, line, and sinker. That's not going to happen. Folks, you know it happened. Just a few weeks later, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem and the whole city cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's where the Passion Week starts. But I want to set the groundwork. So we're headed for the, the uh, now, here, let me tell you something else too. Well, I'll finish the thought book. We're headed for the Passion Week. We're headed for Sunday. We're headed for the triumphal entry. But I think it's so important to measure it against this remarkable promise where just five or six weeks earlier, Jesus had made this staggering promise to the Pharisees who had come with the hopes of tricking him into Jerusalem so they could put him to death, and he says, you're not going to see me until that city welcomes me as king. How did that happen? I think we can trace it. Now, while I got you there in Psalm 118, uh, you've already seen it maybe, but let me just tell you, there is, there is a verse in Psalm 118 that everybody in the room knows by heart. Have you seen it up there? I'll start it. This is the day... Which the Lord has made, what? Now, I know, I know, uh, we like to get up in the morning and throw the drapes back and say, ah, this is the day which the Lord has made. Help yourself. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about one day. That day was, April, was, was March 29th, 33 AD. This is talking about the triumphal entry. This is a psalm to teach you. And understand, he is not saying this or that day. All creation has longed for thousands of years for the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3. Our hearts have yearned for the day when God's deliverer would appear. And the point is, this is the day which only God could make. This is the day of Messiah's appearance. And therefore, we will be glad and rejoice in it. It's talking about the day of Messiah's appearance. Furthermore, I want you to see one other verse here, and it's verse 25, where he says, save now. Now, I say he says, the psalmist teaches you, when you see Messiah, you cry out, this is the day that the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice. You cry out, blessed is he who comes finally in the name of the Lord. But you also cry out, save now. They were taught that that Messiah was their Savior, to receive him as their only hope of deliverance from sins. that make sense to you? All that's there. By the way, this word right here, save now, can you say that in Hebrew? You can. What is it? Anybody know? You, you all know it. What is it? Ho-shanah. 
Now, we have made of Hosanna kind of a just a praise word, and that's okay. It means something, folks. It means be our deliverer. Save now. Hoshana. So, with that background, let me take you to the next biblical event here. And that is the raising of Lazarus. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm building a big porch for a little house, okay? Because I know we gotta, we got to keep moving. But, but the fact is that, let me take you back to this. So, first of all, we're moving toward the triumphal entry. I'm going to get you through it tonight. But, first of all, understand that several weeks earlier, Jesus had made this promise. You're not going to see me. I'm going to say it one more time. If you'd have been there, you thought, that's not going to happen. It can't happen. It does happen. It, and it happens because Jesus is wise as a serpent. So let's start with it. But it begins, actually, this story begins with the raising of Lazarus. And, uh, okay, so I got some notes here for you. There's Perea. All right, so let me take you to the raising of Lazarus. Now, I give you on the map here, and perhaps it's too small for you to see, but Bethany, Lazarus, is a wealthy Jewish follower of Jesus. Uh, Jesus had gone to Lazarus' home during his Judean ministry, during Jesus' Judean ministry, Luke chapter 10, and had befriended this family. It's going to be very, very strategic. There's nothing accidental about it. So now, while Jesus is still over there in Perea, you see it there, somebody comes and says, the one whom you love is sick. So now, Jesus, he tarries Two days. And, and then he says to his disciples, we're going to go back. By the way, do you remember what Thomas said when Jesus said we're going to go back and care? Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. If you leave the city of Jerusalem to the east, you're going to go down into the Cadron Valley, climb up on the Mount of Olives, and then right on the backside of the Mount of Olives, on the crest of the Mount of Olives, the city of Bethany. Village. It's a village. But... Uh, do you remember what? So Jesus is going to leave Perea, jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, right? He's going to go back to Jerusalem, jurisdiction of Pontius Pilate, where the Jews, the Jewish leadership, and get him to do their bidding. And and when he tells his disciples, I remember what Thomas says. Anybody? Let us go die with him. That's how dangerous it is. You have to understand this. Jesus, well, he's going to become more of a future. So here's the story. I got to be quick. John chapter eleven. Uh, I already mentioned the story. It's familiar. Again, this is just weeks before the Passover at which Jesus will die. Jesus comes and, and, and uh, you know, the Bible is explicit. Well, actually, it's Martha's statement that, that by the time Jesus got there, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And I think that's twice important. First of all, because there was a cycle of mourning when a man died, but the fourth day, uh, the, uh, of, of the, uh, uh, for seven days after he died, you mourned his passing with, his fam with the family. You sit, Shiva, if you're familiar with this. You, you just go and commiserate with the family. But the big day is the fourth day, and the most people would have been there on that day. But more importantly is this. When a man died in this culture, you could attend to his body for three days. They, he was undoubtedly buried in a a cave, a tomb, a man-made cave that had been fashioned as a tomb. And when he died, his body would have been laid on a shelf in that tomb, in that little tiny tomb, and, uh, but it would have still been open. But for three days, you could come and you could attend to his body. But at, at the end of the third day, you always closed the tomb. And the reason was the body began to smell. As a matter of fact, 
what they would do is they would take strips of cloth, a lot of times just what he was wearing when he died, and they'd, they'd tear it into strips, and then they would soak it in a perfume, just cheap perfume water, and they would wrap his body. All they're trying, they're not mummifying, they make no attempt to retard, decay, or anything like that. They're just trying to keep the smell down so that people can come. It's so important in that culture to actually participate in the burial of somebody you love, and people are going to come quickly. But at the end of the third day, you have to seal the tomb. And the reason is simply because the body's going to smell. Now, I think that's important because, because uh, and, and I, 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 it just drives me crazy when you hear people say, and you do quite often, well, maybe, you know, those poor primitive people, they were so much more intelligent than we are. And they could tell when a person was dead. Give me a break. So you'll hear, well, he just slipped into a coma. Well, this is what's at stake. You see... On the day before Jesus got there, that, sea, that tomb had been sealed. You'd roll the stone across, and you'd take mud and stones and chink it. Not because you didn't want animals to get in or anything like that. They knew what was going to happen to the body. You didn't want the smell to get out. And so now Jesus comes, and he stands there, and he says, roll away the tomb. Uh, the stone, not the tomb, the stone. And, and you remember Martha? I always say Martha's kind of, uh, still working, you know, kind of the Martha Stewart of her own day, you know what I'm saying? She's kind of a little homemaker, you know, she's always. And this is a serious faux pas. I mean, this is a real, this is, I mean, that stench is going to come rolling out of there. It's going to get in your nose, going to choke you. I mean, it's an awful, and it's been in this little tiny man-made cave the size of a small closet, you know, and been there for a better part of 24 hours. But Jesus insists. And I think people were probably backing up, you know, and holding their nose, and, you know, now here comes that rolling out that stench. Why? Why is that important? That can't be counterfeited. You couldn't possibly be that day, there that day and understand. This man is dead. Nobody can produce that smell other than a dead person, for heaven's sake. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. You know, he's wrapped up. I always think he probably, you know, comes hopping out. <laughs> I don't know. They, they, you remember Jesus said, cut them loose. Now, there's a little debate as to whether they wrapped the head, but if they did, some have suggested that Jesus was afraid he'd suffocate and he'd have to do this all over again. You know, but, uh, but however he liked it, I don't even know how he got off that shelf. But here he comes. Now, listen, folks. Now, here's, this is so important. And John makes so much of the fact that this set the stage for the, for, the, for the triumphal entry. And I'll show you why in just a moment. But I always say, you go to a funeral, and as you leave that afternoon, the guest of honor is at the garden gate. You know, thanks for being here. It was good having you. You know, you're going to go home talking about that. <laughs> and it did. The whole Jewish world was set on its ear. You know, John says in chapter 12 that there were folks who came to Passover that year just because they wanted to see Lazarus. Evidently, they hadn't planned to go up. But when they heard about this, we're going, Mabel. And off they went. And so, ah, there ain't no Mabels, I know. But... But the point is, honest to goodness, the, the, the raising of Lazarus. As a matter of fact, let me take you to John chapter 11 and uh, uh, the end of the chapter. And uh, John makes much. Uh, this is the end of chapter 45. But I want you to notice a couple of realities. Number one, it says, all right, let me tell you something. He says, many of the Jews, just take it, just, just put it somewhere in your cranium. When John, in the fourth gospel, speaks of the Jews, he virtually always means the leaders. So this is not the common man, this is the leaders. So some of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen the things Jesus did, they believed on him. But others sent 
word to the high priest. Now, we're going to get to know this guy well tomorrow morning. The high priest's name was Caiaphas, and Caiaphas is the great criminal of this entire drama. And when Caiaphas heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, well, I'd love to talk you through the whole passage. But notice this. In verse 53, after some conversation, this is what I want you to see. From that day on, they plotted to put him to death. And then you go down to verse 57, and it says the chief priests and the Pharisees, that's the Sanhedrin. Are you familiar with that? The Sanhedrin is the body of self-government that the Jews allowed the, I'm sorry, that the Romans allowed the Jews to have. It's composed of 70 men. Every town had a Sanhedrin. It was a town council. But the big Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin, was there in Jerusalem, 70 men, Pharisees and Sadducees. We'll talk about it tomorrow morning. Hugely important. But the fact is that Caiaphas called the Sanhedrin together, and it says they gave a command that if anyone knew where he was, they should report it that they might seize him. Folks, get this. After Lazarus was raised from the dead just weeks before the Passion Week, probably uh, two or three, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he was, Jesus was a fugitive. There, the most powerful men in Jewry had determined to put him to death, and they were public about it. Now, think about what this means. Just with regard to Jesus, he had to be so clever, so circumspect. He had to, he, it's, it's really amazing that he's able to survive this. But he does it, and he doesn't do it by, by generating some sort of divine force field around himself. You know, so you, he, he is clever. He's remarkably clever. And you can trace it the rest of the way. All right. So I'm going to say that, number one, as a result of the raising of Lazarus, uh, Jesus is a fugitive. Now, I want you to see two other things in this, two other dynamics here. Secondly, notice this, that therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. He went from there into a country near the wilderness. It means the border. It's the border between Judea in the south and Samaria in the north to a place called Ephraim. There's a little city. It's right on the board. Now remember that, A, the Samaritans have no dealings with the Jews. Samaria is dangerous for Jews, especially during feast season. But Jesus has standing in Samaria. He's welcome in Samaria. Because he had gone up and encountered that woman in John chapter 4, and then he had stayed those days, and many had believed on him. So again and again, Jesus is able to make his way through Samaria where it would be dangerous for any other Jews. Very deliberate. So now Jesus takes himself with his disciples to this place called Ephraim, and he waits. We're going to pick it up right there, but I want you to notice one other thing. This is really important. John gives us this note. He says in verse 55 that the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now the point is that Passover was a very important pilgrimage feast. Jews came from all over, but if they had had any sort of ceremonial impurity, an open sore, a communicable disease, a woman had given birth to a baby or whatever, they had to go up early to attend to the proper rites of, of purification or the feast. So the city would, begun to, would begin to swell in size a few days before the Passover. That makes sense. That's what John's saying, but notice what he says in the next verse. And they sought Jesus, and they spoke among themselves. What he means is they whispered. And they said, as they stood there, what do you think, that he'll not come to the feast? All right, now think about this. Jesus had said, just those few weeks earlier, to those murderous Pharisees, you're not going to see me until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. 
it's not going to happen. Well, now, a few weeks later, now nah, we don't know for sure, but just, just shortly later, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He is a fugitive. He betakes himself to a little village where he will be safe because it's right in the border of Samaria and nobody's going to go near Samaria. And meanwhile, the city of Jerusalem is abuzz with the question, do you think he'll even come to the feast? Now that's the scene. Now let's go to the triumphal entry. And I'm going to take you, I'm going to use a map here. I'm going to be rather hasty. But in Luke 17, in verse 11, so Jesus is in the village of Ephraim. Now watch this. I got too much here, but Luke 17, 11. And I give you here on the, uh, on the, uh, what do you, on the PowerPoint the King James, because the King James is the real button. No, I <laughs> make a lot of trouble here. No, not at all. But this is a really good translation. And the problem is that, now, let, let me say, first of all, this is harmonizing. John told us that in John 11 that Jesus had, taken, had gone to Ephraim. Luke picks the story up right here. And he has him going to Jerusalem from Ephraim, going to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, what's curious is that Luke begins by saying, and this is what ties people in knots. Do you see it there? It came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Now, uh, I give you some, some, a picture here, and I'm going to hurry. But again... What's wrong with that verse? If you go through Samaria and Galilee, you got Jerusalem in your rearview mirror, right? And because of that, a lot of Bible translations putts with it. And you may have a translation that says something, he went through the coasts of, or he went along the coasts of, or something like that. It couldn't be more explicit, both by case uh, ending and, and preposition. He went right through the heart of Samaria and Galilee. Why is he, and I think we ought to leave the text as it stands. Honest to goodness, I'm not, I'm not arguing for the King James. I'm just saying that, then let's, let's just try and imagine why, and I think, I think it's very important. Jesus was, was a Galilean. Remember in Luke chapter 2, the story of Jesus going up to the temple at the age of 12, it says that his parents went up every year. So Jesus knew the habits of the Galilean Jews. Now let me just tell you something. Galilee is way up here to the north, and uh, there are actually, Galilee's larger than that, and, and, and Galilee is, is deeply populated with Jewish people. Uh, Galilee, you know, the rabbis used to like to say that it's easier to raise ten sons in Galilee than one vineyard in Judea. And it's true. Judea is tough living. Galilee is beautiful and open and beautiful farmland and plenty of rain. And it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it, Josephus calls it the ambition of nature. If nature could be what it wants to be, it would be Galilee. Judea was hard to travel, hard to keep water. They had plenty of water, but they couldn't store it. No, very little tillable soil, no place to grow grain and so on. So it was tough living down in Judea, but if you really love God, you're going to live down there because that's where the temple is. But most of the Jews lived up here in Galilee. Well, at Passover time, the Jews would make their way in grand numbers down to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, watch this. There will be a quiz, I like to say called the Bema Seat. No, I don't know. This probably won't come up. But, but uh, I want you to see this. 
Now, can you see the map at all? Here's the thing you need to understand, that it was the habit of the Jews who lived up here in Galilee. Uh, get ahead a little ways. Um, oh, I'm going backwards. That's my problem, for heaven's sakes. Look, right there. The Jews would come down. Look, there were two routes by which you might make your way from Galilee to Jerusalem. One of them passed right through Samaria. It was usually way too dangerous. Even if you took the other route that I'm going to show you in a moment, it was still dangerous. So you never did this alone. Remember when Jesus was left behind? He stayed behind. And it says both Mary and Joseph thought he was in the company. Do you remember this in Luke chapter 2? And the point is, they would travel as you know, bands, if you don't mind, of Passover pilgrims. So you might have a couple hundred people, and the men would be on the outside, and the women on the inside, and the children, and so on. And they would make their way down, and so on, traveling. They, they didn't hurry at it. But the point is that they would gather in the, in the Valley of Jezreel, which is that arrowhead-shaped valley I've got penciled there. And then, watch this now. Can you see this? I hope this makes some sense. They could take what is called the Ridge, R-I-D-G-E route, which follows the, the central ridge right down the heart of And it's the easiest. I mean, it's a 60-, 65-mile trip, and it's, it's not easy. But, but, but by standards of that day, it's much easier than the, the alternative. So the ridge route is what they might have wanted to take, but because of the danger of Samaria, it went right through Samaria, they could not do it. So there is another route. Now watch this, see if you can see this at all. They, would, they, they start out in the Jezreel Valley, which is the arrowhead, and then they would make their way down the shaft of the arrow, which is the Harod Valley. They would ford the Jordan River and make their da way down the rift. So you have the ridge right up on the hill, the ridge route, this is the rift route. And, and, and what they're doing is skirting Samaritan territory. And then they would, they would uh, ford the Jordan River and make their way up the backside of the Mount of Olives and up to Jerusalem. All right, now, just know that. Does that make sense to you? It's quite simple. I'm just saying that there are two viable routes. The Jewish people, especially at Passover, virtually always would take the rift, the long. It's about twice, it's about half again as long. And it ends, if you're going south, uh, north to south, with a horrible climb from Jericho at 900 feet below sea level to the top of the Mount of Olives, which is 2,700 feet above sea level and about 15 miles. So it's, remember a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You're flat going down, let me just tell you something. But, but all that aside, the, the route which was forced upon them normally was the rift route. All right, now, let's pick the story up. All right, got to make sure you understand. Here is the question before the house. Jesus has made a staggering promise. He promised that that city of Jerusalem would not receive him, would not see him until they received him as Messiah, until they cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're thinking that can't happen. Well, we know what happened. We got the record. And I have read more times, uh, many times I've read people who, who, who kind of represented as Jesus just kind of almost naively, innocently riding into town, all these people getting all excited. Ooh, this is nice. Who oh, I didn't see this coming. Listen. Jesus made this happen. That's what I want you to see. He made it happen. Now let me show you how he made it happen. And I am not making anything up. This is exactly what the scriptures say. Because it says in Luke 17, once again, that as he went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria and then Galilee. Now the record is clear. You see, going through Samaria, he'd have been in, he's only, he's, he's keeping himself safe. Because the Jews are not going anywhere near Samaria. But he's got standing. 
So he just makes his way south to north. Now, as soon as he emerges into the valley of Jezreel, he immediately, by the way, i got to tell you this, how does Jesus normally protect himself from his enemies? His enemies, how many times the Bible say, wanted to take him, but they could not because they feared the multitudes. Now, what's at stake here is this, that Rome demands whatever province they're talking about, whoever it is who controls that province, they got two jobs. If they do those two jobs, they're going to live a long, happy, prosperous, powerful life. If they don't, they're going to find themselves on a real small island out in the middle of the Mediterranean. The two jobs are these. Number one, collect the taxes. Number two, keep the peace. And because Jesus was so wildly popular, as superficial as that popularity turns out to be, his enemies could never seize him. This could become so important tomorrow morning when we go through the arrest. They could never seize him. And, spare him. and so here comes Jesus. He travels north. Here, I'll show you on the map. He travels north through. So here he is at Ephraim. Can you see that? I've kind of highlighted it down there just north of Jerusalem. Actually, I stuck it in there. But now the, he, he, he passed through the midst of Samaria. So here he comes. And now he comes up and he makes his way into the, the Galilee, the Valley of Jezreel. And there are going to be these ba bands of pass, and he of Passover pilgrims, they've formed, and they're starting their way down the river, and he joins them. And now he begins to do miracles again. He's been kind of resistant to miracles. This is when he heals the ten lepers, and only one comes back. This is when, and not only is he doing miracles, he's being very much the provocateur. This is when he challenged, Matthew 19, he challenges the Pharisaic teaching on divorce. This is when the rich young ruler comes to him and Jesus says, sell everything. All of the, this is, there's a lot going on as Jesus makes, it's going to take him four or five days and, and he's traveling now with hundreds of people. And I always think, if I'm in the next group back and I hear that the Nazarene's up there healing people, I'm going to hot foot it. I'm, you know what I'm saying? I'm sure the, the, it, it's growing. And so here he comes. Uh, he, he joins that band of Passover pilgrims. They get together, they make their way down for the Jordan River down through the rift, all along the way. When he gets to Jericho down here, that's when he, he heals a blind man named Bartimaeus and his friend. This is when, oh, this is so clever. This is when Jesus invites himself to lunch with a taxpayer. There would have, a taxpayer, no, a tax collector. Uh, there would have been such a gasp that went up from the crowd when Jesus called Zacchaeus out of that tree and said, I'm coming to your house. He's being the provocateur, he's doing miracles, he's teaching, he's challenging the Pharisees all along the way. But watch this, folks, here's where it comes full. In John 12, it says six days. Now, I, I, I haven't got time, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of study with it, I'd be happy to share it with you, but let me just say, John 12, so we're harmonizing here. So John, raising of Lazarus, big trouble, goes to Ephraim. Luke leaves Ephraim goes up to uh, the, the Jezreel Valley, joins in uh, with, with this band of, Fer uh, of pilgrims, comes all the way down the rift route. Now he's coming up the backside of the, uh, the, the Mount of Olives. And again, you're coming from Jericho up to the, to, to the uh, uh, city of Jerusalem. And just before you crest the Mount of Olives, where you're going to see the temple at your feet and so on, just before you crest, to this day, there's a road that goes off to the south, just a half a mile to Bethany. So now, John says that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Now, tomorrow, we'll walk through some of what goes on here. 
But stay with me, because I'm asking the question, how in the world did Jesus fulfill that prophecy? And I'll tell you something else. This is an important question. Nobody talks about it. It should be talked about. You've got to ask yourself how Jesus got away with presenting himself. Rome is in charge. Rome has no place for pretender kings. She has sedition on every, and, and, and she will not put up with sedition. And the, the reality that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem and the whole city erupted him, threw down their garments, is what, what, what you do in a Jewish world to welcome a king, and welcomed him as king. How did he get away with it? This is the answer. Jesus, on Friday, six days before the Passover, is Friday. So, Get the picture. Here he comes. All these people, they're excited, and uh, they're excited about what they're seeing Jesus do. They're also excited, John 12 says, because they want to get to Jerusalem to see this guy Lazarus who's walking around after being a dead guy for four days. And so and there's all this excitement. But now, and of course Jesus is the center of attention, and just as you're getting close to Jerusalem, you watch. It's Friday, and you're hurt. What happens when the sun goes down on Friday? Shabbat, Sabbath. And so you can't travel on Sabbath. So they want to get up into the city, but they watch as Jesus, and he very much, he waves, and he and his 12 disciples make their way down the road to the little village of Bethany. Everybody understands exactly. He's going to go keep the Sabbath with Lazarus, which is exactly what he does. But now these hundreds and hundreds of people go into the city of Jerusalem. Now let me ask you, what is everybody asking what are they asking one another in the city of Jerusalem? Remember? Do you think you'll come to the feast? And now, on Friday afternoon, hundreds of people come into the city, and I would argue that they got two messages to a, to a city that is a Twitter with, with excitement about the Nazarene coming to the feast. And now all of these people come in, and they got two messages. I, 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 you have a spot for this in your notes. But, but those two messages are, number one, he is coming. Oh, he's coming. We've been traveling with him. My goodness. There are people along the way who can see, who couldn't see before. He's, he's, he, oh, it's so exciting. He's coming. He is coming. But he got another message. He'll be here Sunday morning. Because he stopped in Bethany. And Bethany is just beyond where you can travel on the Sabbath. So everybody knows he's going to keep the Sabbath in Bethany. And on Sunday morning, he'll be here. So now, think about this, folks. It's Passover. What is every Jewish person thinking about at Passover? Right? Egypt. The time when God, in fulfillment of a covenant promise, delivered them from an awful Gentile overlord. Well, guess what? There's another Gentile overlord. It's called Rome. And we're sick up to here with it. And we got our own set of promises in the book of Daniel. It's time. And so every Jewish heart is beating with thoughts of sedition at this sea. That's why the Romans hated Passover. The city got so huge and everybody's talking about God delivering them from Gentiles and so on. And with, with good reason, by the way. But the point is, all of these people go into the city. The city is a Twitter with the, with the, with the question, is Jesus going to come? And, and now they start saying, he is coming. And you're saying to yourself, now you got about a day to think about this, because sometime on Friday, the six days before the Passover, it's explicit that these people started to make their way into Jerusalem. So you got a couple days to spread this around and talk about it, and remember that you're sick of Rome. There's a guy walking around town who Jesus raised from the dead just a few weeks ago. If you had to go to battle against a hideous 
overlord, would you be encouraged to follow somebody who could raise you from the dead? Would that give you a certain measure of abandon in the effort? You see what I'm saying? So there is this, and it just builds. And what happens, and the Bible could not be more explicit, and it's not explicit exactly about, although in John 12, and verse 12, you have this really important verse. As John tells the story of the triumphal entry, he says, when those who had come for the feast that year heard that Jesus was coming. How did they hear? Jesus contrived, he's wise as a serpent, he fell in with those pilgrims, he cleverly stopped on Friday afternoon in Bethany, and now hundreds of people go in with this exciting news and the city begins to percolate, and, and I don't think there were any, any announcements, there weren't any billboards, there weren't any you know, social media, whatever in the world, they just one by one, they said, we're going to, and, and everybody knows he's in Bethany and there's only one road that comes from Bethany. I know what let's do. Let's go welcome him. So now Jesus on Sunday morning sends his disciples up to Bethphagia. They fetch that donkey. He gets on that donkey and rides over the crest of the hill and the whole, the Bible says, the whole city was moved with his coming. That's how he got away with it. The only way to explain, I've seen some horribly deficient attempts to explain how Jesus got away with it. What are the Romans going to do? The whole, what are the Jewish authorities going to do? The whole city exploded in excitement and welcomed him as king. In the most, and, 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 and again, they, they're crying out, blessed is he who comes. What did Jesus say? You're not going to see me until you cry out. Blessed is he. There it happened. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hoshanah. And this is why when they come and say that Jesus' enemies, make your disciples, he stopped. If, 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 if they don't cry out, the very stones would cry out. Why? Because this is the day which the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. We've waited for this since the garden. And here he is. And so the city erupts in happy welcome. Now, I don't want to come back to this in the morning over much. You have some notes. There are prophecies that are fulfilled. They're so important and so on. But to suffice it to say this, that I'm going to use this little outline, and it's in your, it's in your, uh, it's in your uh, notes along the way. I, I think we need to understand that Sunday is a day of messianic presentation. Now, what I mean by that is that this is, listen, all throughout his, his, his public ministry, Jesus insisted again and again that he was the long-awaited Messiah. He did it very deliberately and almost circumspectly, but he made it clear. But this, I'm going to say again, it's March 29th, 33 AD. Uh, yeah, March 29th. This is the day which the Lord has made. This is the day of Messiah's presentation. Uh, this is when he most dramatically, most carefully, in fulfillment of three lines of Old Testament prophecy, Jesus makes the offer of himself to Israel as her Messiah. Does that make sense to you? Sunday is a day of messianic presentation. Now, let me say, make two comments real quickly. We've got to be done. Number one, before Jesus, all right, Jesus arrived in Bethany, John 12, on Friday, six days before the Passover. That the next day, they would have kept Sabbath very quietly with Lazarus and his family. The next day, after Sabbath was over, there was a feast in Bethany. And at that, it was at the home of a man named Simon. But do you remember how we know him? What he is? He is Simon the what? 
the leper. Here's what happened. And this is the same way it is today. I've got to be very quick. But Jews, uh, Jewish folk who, are, who keep the Sabbath, they, they're very quiet. They just, it's a quiet day, family and, and, and rest and so on. Sometime perhaps in the scriptures. But when the sun goes down on Saturday, you see, as the sun goes down on Friday, you have the coming in of the Sabbath. Do you know Fiddler on the Roof? If you haven't watched Fiddler on the Roof, shame on you. Go home and watch Fiddler on the Roof. But remember at the beginning, Tevye's hurrying to get rid of everybody, and then she puts on a scarf. That's the bringing in of the Sabbath. That's on Friday. Then you have uh, Friday night, then it's quiet. But on Saturday night, you have the going out of the Sabbath. And that's when they will go, they'll gather and they'll have you know, food. And I, I, I enjoy sometimes when we're in Jerusalem on Friday evening, just going down to Ben Yehuda Street, which is a, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a ghost town, at 7 o'clock, but then at 7.30, the place is hopping and all the restaurants are open and so on. Because that's how, that's how they do Well, here Jesus comes down. They didn't know he was coming. And they love this Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead just a few weeks ago. And now it goes throughout. This is Saturday, and they say, let's have a feast. So they have a feast at the home of Simon the leper. I always say that because if you got an invitation to a nice dinner at Simon, you know, I mean, it seems, you know, I always think maybe finger food. I don't know. <laughs> but, but the point is, that's gross, that's gross. But, but, no, but the point is this, he clearly wasn't a leper anymore. Now, very possibly, he too had good reason to love Jesus. See what I'm saying? The fact that they make a point of this, it's not in the record, but I wonder if he hadn't been healed. But the point is that at that feast, there is an anointing by Mary, this huge, huge scene, and Jesus rebukes Judas. That really sets the scene for Tuesday night. So just file it away. It's, it's told in Luke and Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew and Mark and John, but it is John who emphasized that when, when Mary anointed, you know, there are two commodities which you take for, not even commodities, yeah, you could say that, that you take for granted that are hugely expensive in this world. Color and scent. Just know that. Yeah, it's just beautiful smells and bright colors, very expensive. And so for this woman to have this, well, I, I think that afternoon, all these people are there, the sun is going down, the Sabbath is over, Lazarus, I'm sorry, uh, Bethany has gathered to celebrate this remarkable Nazarene, and in the midst of the feast she comes over, and when she popped that cork, I think, I think conversation within 20 feet would have stopped people. Wow, do you smell that? And then they probably expected her to take just a little dab, which would have been a huge act of love, and, and she begins to dash it. And that smell begins to just dash through the house, and everybody would have stopped everything they were doing. What is going on? And, and, and the Bible says everybody. I mean, the disciples all. And I think if you and I, we thought, Mary, you know what you're doing? By the way, again and again, Jesus said, I'm going to die. As far as I can tell, there is one person in the record who listens. It's Mary. She's done this against the day of my burial. And as long as people remember this, she'll remember that. But the point is, when Jesus, when, 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 when everybody says, Mary, what are you doing? And Jesus says, you leave her alone. She's done this against the day of my burial. When he makes that rebuke, Judas takes it personally. Of course, he, he wanted to steal some of it. So remember that it was on Saturday night that there was a feast where Jesus rebuked, really, everybody. But Judas, it's, you know what? Can I tell you something? Sin 
makes you stupid. I mean, it's that simple. And, and, and Judas was a thief. And he loved his sin more than he loved what he knew very well to be the truth. And he clung to his sin. And when you do that, it distorts and it perverts and it twists. And so Jesus just reasoned, everybody else is, is correct. Judas is angry. That's on Saturday night. Does that make sense to you? But the next morning, Jesus does ride into the city of Jerusalem. It is a day of messianic presentation. The whole city, as I say, erupt, not as I say, as the Gospels say explicitly, the synoptics, the whole city erupted in happy welcome as Sunday. Now I'm going to send you home with a question, all right? We're going to address this in the, mor in the morning. I hope it keeps you awake most of the night. But. <laughs> now here's the question. I think it's a legitimate question. Given Sunday, why Friday? It's the same crowd. The same crowd who on Sunday is saying, Hoshana, be our king, save us, on Friday are saying, give us Barabbas. We'll not have this man to rule over us. Given Sunday, why Friday? We'll talk about it in the morning, all right? Okay, should we have a word of prayer? Yes. Yeah, let me pray. It's appropriate. Father, we worship you as... Father, we worship you, first of all, as our God. You are infinitely worthy of our worship because you are our maker, you are our creator, you are our God. But then, Father, we worship you for that which you have done on our behalf. And, and we, as we sit here, as we think about the day that we have walked through, we are surrounded in so many ways by evidences of what a good and giving and loving and caring God you are. But Father, above all of those, there is this, that you have sent your Son. And we rejoice over that. We thank you for the life that he lived and then the death that he died and the price that he paid. But Father, we want to understand this blessed narrative as carefully as possible. So go with us and enable us as we thank you so much for the spirit of these folk who come out on a Friday night. But I would pray, Father, that you might just uh, help us to understand more carefully the, the, the price. We've been bought with a price. It's a dear price. And the story of that blessed but awful purchase is chronicled for us so carefully in these pages in the Gospels. Help us to understand it and rejoice in it uh, and, and, and to, to give ourselves the more carefully back to you because we have been bought with such a dear price. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.